Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Praise the Lord. To the best of my understanding, there's been three times, three times when God has poured out his wrath. His judgment has been poured out many times, but his wrath is different. We call the wrath of God in Hebrew, Haron Yah. It's beyond judgment. It's destruction. It's no chance. It's, that's it. Judgment always leaves the possibility of restoration and repentance. God's wrath, that's it. He poured out three times. The first time the world experienced the wrath of God was in the judgment of the days of Noah. That was the wrath of God. The third time is this coming time in the Great Tribulation. But in between the first time and the third time, there was a second time when God's wrath was poured out. When was that? No. That was local. The cross. God poured out his wrath on Jesus. All the things I did, all the things you did, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. God becomes a man and the wrath of God was poured out on him. He took my sin, took your sin. The wrath of God was actually poured out on Jesus. The wrath of God. The reason we don't have to go to the Great Tribulation, we'll be saved out of it, is because that wrath that was due us, you know, was poured out on Jesus instead. It was poured out on Jesus. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Yet few men find it, you know. It always comes back to the basic things. Why did I get saved? Why did I get saved? I was crazy. My, I, all I cared about was passing my exam, fornicating as much as possible, and taking drugs. That's all I cared about. That's all I, when I was younger, I cared about overthrowing the government. That was it. That's all I cared about. Why did I get saved? Who can ever know this? Who can ever know this? I hear hymns like, when I survey the wondrous cross, you know, it means everything, doesn't it? The church has indeed lost its way. The church has indeed lost its way. Just look at the traditional hymns, the things that Wesley composed or the Isaac Watts composed. Just look at those. Augustus Toplady, just look at those. They understood what it was. And now we got all this hype and nonsense. Well, the reason I'm bringing this up is this. We have to look at next year's conference, Nick has already approached me. And, of course, we have to hear from the Lord, but one of the ways we hear from the Lord is we hear from the people. How many people here are meeting in a home or a small group because they can't find a Bible-based church near where they live? Look around. Now, we've planted several groups around the country and helped others to plant these things we call Miskav Ladakh in Hebrew, a shelter for the oppressed. Do you think it would be a good thing next year for us to do a conference dedicated to the subject of making fellowships for people who don't have any? The solution to bad church is good church, not no church. I'm not talking about a building. I'm not talking about a denomination. I'm not talking about an ordained reverend. I'm talking about a fellowship. A place where you can witness the people, bring them in to hear the gospel, bring them to be baptized and discipled. Where you can 
share your faith, where you can share your Christian life and fellowship with others, where you can study the scriptures together. It's not scriptural to be churchless. If there's any possibility of having a church. I don't care if it's ten people meeting in a house. If the committed relationship is there and if God has raised it up, that's a church. And I honestly believe part of the reason I've known, I've known since 1977, I have known, absolutely known in my spirit for sure. And I, I don't, I, I, when I say God showed me something, I don't say that lightly. In 1977, I stand by God showed me. That's when churches began stopping the midweek Bible studies and meeting, meeting in homes. This was the Holy Spirit preparing the church for the future persecution. I honestly believe that that's the future. You know, either you go into the Babylon, the one, one world religious system, or else, you know, you're an underground church. And the Holy Spirit is preparing an underground church now. Do you think it would be appropriate that we would have a seminar next year on Church for the Churchless? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the first thing to do, if you think we should have, who thinks we should have a that in fact, who thinks we need to have a seminar like that? A lot of people. Listen, I'm not trying to make a sale, but we have something called <laughs> the gifts of the spirit. I hate coming into a seminar or a conference and reteaching old stuff. Do me a favor. If you don't have that tape, borrow it or whatever, but listen to it, okay? About the gifts of the Spirit. Real fellowship cannot happen without people knowing their gifts. I don't want to have to go back over and waste people's time with things that some people have heard and others haven't. Listen to the tapes, the gifts of the Spirit, and we'll begin building Lord willing next year from there. Church for the Churchless. Good idea for a conference? Okay. Tell your friends, if you know other people in such a situation, bring them along and we'll look at this idea. Church for the Churchless. That'll be next year's Conference subject, Lord willing. Types of the rapture. Heavenly Father, we ask you to meet with us now in the power and presence of your spirit once more. As always, Lord God, we ask that you show us your word. Help us to understand it. Not just to increase our knowledge, but to increase our knowledge with the view of changing our lives of making us more like your Son, the one who saved us, of serving him and of helping others before he returns. In his wonderful name, the one who took our sin and experienced your wrath on our behalf, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Normally I would say, let's begin at the beginning, because that's a good place to begin. The major types of the rapture. But before we look at the first type of the rapture in Genesis, let's look at the clearest picture we have of the rapture in the Bible. The clearest picture the Lord has given us. Some of you know this, but we have to go through it for the tape. Turn with me, please, to Matthew 17. Now, we have a new two-part tape, Matthew 16, Who Do You Say I Am? And that gives a lot of background to Matthew 17. And six days later, Yeshua took with him Peter... Yaakov and Yohanan, Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Moshe Rabbeinu and Eliyahu Hanavi. And Caiaphas Shimone, Peter, answered and said to Yeshua, 
Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were much afraid. We know that Matthew 16 was Caesarea Philippi. The Mount of Transfiguration was almost certainly not Mount Tabor, where the story of Deborah takes place, which is a traditional site, according to the Eastern Orthodox, Rome, etc. The Mount of Transfiguration was almost certainly Har Hermon, Mount Hermon, above Banyas, where Lebanon, Galilee, and Syria come together overlooking the Golan Heights. We have a new teaching, two-part tape on Matthew 16. This is the highest mountain in Israel, one of the highest mountains in the Middle East, snow-capped about seven to eight months of the year. Peter wants to build three booths because he thinks this is the millennium, the beginning of the messianic reign. Zechariah 11, the millennium of Zechariah 14, rather. Jesus comes back in Zechariah 12, but in Zechariah 14 is the beginning of the millennial kingdom. The ultimate messianic fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles is the millennial reign of Jesus. Peter thought, that's it. Here's the Messiah. Here's Moses and Elijah. It's the millennium. He wanted to build three booths. Perfectly rational, perfectly logical in his context. Most of you know this from the Autumn Feast of Israel tape and various other tapes. You have Jesus. You have a man who was faithful to God and never died and was raptured. Right? Elijah. And you have a man who died faithful to God, Moses. But they all look the same as Jesus. Moses, who died in the Lord, looked like Jesus. Elijah, a man who never died, looked like Jesus. The transfigured. We shall be changed. First Corinthians, please. Chapter 15. Verse 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Elijah is the picture of those who are raptured. Moses is the picture of those who die in the Lord. We shall be as he is. It doesn't matter whether we are dead or alive. When it comes, we meet him together in the air. Understand? It's the highest mountain. It's the clearest picture we have of the rapture and resurrection. Now the cloud comes down. What is the cloud? The Shekinah, isn't it? And the voice of God comes through it. The Father speaking through the Spirit to the Son. They're in the divine presence of the Trinity. The triunity of the Godhead is present. You understand? You have the Shekinah, you have the Father, and you have the Son. The apostles knew who Moses and Elijah were. The rapture and resurrection will be like that. You're going to know that's John Bunyan. You know, that that's Esther. That's King David. You're going to know, and they're going to know who you are. I don't know. 
we shall be changed. It won't be like this. Now, a glorified body, there are a number of things that teach about it. The way Jesus was. Remember, the resurrection is proliptic. The way he could walk through walls and stuff like that. That teaches, again, it's some hint. Now, let's understand this. You have the triunity of the Godhead present. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all there. Somebody who died in the Lord, somebody who was raptured, and the Lord himself. And the apostles see this, and they think this is the millennium, with good reason. With good reason. Patrick Dixon wrote a book, and he, all, he was the Toronto guy, and he one of General Coates' men, and he argues for altered states of consciousness. The new age mystical experience that gurus have. And he said, irrational behavior is a manifestation of the spirit. Look how irrational Peter's behavior was. He wanted to build three booths. And he writes a book about this. How ludicrous and how crazy. See, irrational behavior is spiritual. And I said to him at a meeting of the Evangelical Alliance with the head of the leaders pro and against Toronto. And I said, look, wait a minute, this is not illogical. This is perfectly logical in its context. And he never heard this. He never had heard any such thing about the Jewish background of the scripture. Never. Yet these people listen to people like that. Altered states of consciousness. It's just the gurus, transcendental meditates Hinduism. That's what he's teaching as Christianity. So it goes. This is the clearest picture we have in the Bible of the rapture and resurrection. Remember, they're the same event with two aspects. You have the triunity of the Godhead present, meeting the Lord in the air, those who died in Christ, those who are alive when he comes, meeting him in the air. The clearest picture. Now, the background of this is on the Matthew 16 tape, Who Do You Say I Am? But what happened here in this mountain, according to Jewish history, the Apocrypha is not canon, but it is biblically important history. That in the days of Jedid, the angels came down and procreated with human women. In Genesis, that happened here. Okay? So, just as the, the angels came down and did something bad, the Son of Man now... Jesus has come down. You understand? He's, he's reversing this demonic invasion. He's reversing this corruption of the human flesh. Satan's plan was this. Salvation would come through the seed of the woman. You understand? So to prevent the seed of the woman, to prevent the Messiah coming from a human woman, he tried to corrupt the human race's DNA. He tried to corrupt it genetically with this demonic procreation. Some people later, at the second century, they began saying it, these were the mighty men of old. That meant that they were descendants of, of Noah. And no, these things were demonoids. And of course, if you listen to as it was in the days of Noah tape, we explained that this will happen again in the last days. They'll be demonoids. This is not science fiction. This is real. You're going to have something, this biogenetic engineering, I'm telling you, there's no problem with science, but there's something wrong with science in the hand of fallen man. Anything fallen man can use for evil, he will. I have no problem with molecular biology. That's not the problem. The problem is molecular biology in the hands of fallen man. That's the problem. You're going to have something demonic. Anyway, that's on the days of Noah tape. Clearest type of the rapture. Okay. Now again, we never base the doctrine on a type, an allegory. We use typology, allegory, midrash to illustrate, to illuminate, to understand it on a deeper level. But it's not the basis of doctrine. Figures of speech, these things have their place to illuminate, to illustrate, to understand. To gain a deeper insight, absolutely. 
But it's not the basis. The basis is what's plainly stated in Corinthians and Thessalonians, etc. But the types illustrated. Now, let's begin at the beginning. Genesis chapter 5. Hanok, in English, Enoch. We're told of Enoch, verse 23, Enoch, verse 22, walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, Methuselah, the oldest man who ever lived. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not. For God took him. First man raptured was Enoch. In the antediluvian world, entropy, bioentropy happened at a much, much slower pace. Cells did not oxidize as quickly. These people really did live to be this old. When you had the flood, first with the fall, but secondly the flood, you had major changes to the earth geophysically, meteorologically, and so on. And entropy began happening at, a, happening at a faster rate. Now, it took one or two generations after the flood for this to be fully realized. Even after the flood, people lived at some point to be older. But the genetic impact that took place on the human race, the flood, the first to fall, and then the flood, these people really did live to be that old. They really did live to be that old. Okay. In lunar years. Now, these ages may be approximations, but you can be sure that Methuselah did live not 900 years thereabout. Enoch lived 365 years. One year for every day of the solar calendar, which didn't exist in those days. And he walked with God. Leading people to suspect or believe he's one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11. Separate story. That's the first. First man walked with God. Okay. Now, this teaches something about God's original plan for man. God never intended for man to die, but to go to heaven without death. You understand? Earth was going to be a breeding ground for the celestial kingdom. Not in the sense the Mormons use the term, but call it what you will. Let's continue. The second, and I don't want to go into it because most of you have heard the tape. Days of Noah. Second rapture, type of the rapture, is the days of Noah. Let's not look at Noah. You can get the Noah tape if you haven't heard it. Most of you have from the show of hands yesterday. But let's look at a few verses in Peter. First Peter chapter 3, verse 20. Who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. 
The water was the judgment. It was always the judgment in the Old Testament. Okay? Sodom and Gomorrah was the fire judgment, but the water judgment was with Noah and with the Egyptians. Everybody goes through the water, but God's people come out. Just like baptism. You go under his co-death with Christ, you come out, it's co-resurrection. Everybody goes through the water, but God's people come out. It would appear in the days of Noah that the fish were not judged. The creation had to be destroyed and the fish weren't. That may be a reason why in the book of, of Genesis you see the contamination of the water. Okay? In any event, let's look at the days of Noah. God was patient while the ark was being constructed. If you've heard the Noah tape, we looked at the dimensions of the ark. 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 30 cubits. 300 is the number of the elite, isn't it? As in Gideon's army, as in the shield Solomon hung in the temple. It's an elite number. 50 cubits wide. The number of the Holy Spirit, Day of Pentecost, Hamashim, right? Spirit filled, pitched within and without. Spirit indwelling, spirit outpoured. 30 cubits high, the number of spiritual maturity. David begins to reign as king when he's 30. Jesus begins his public ministry when he's 30, etc., etc. Once more, an ark is being constructed. The wrath of God is tarrying to give people a chance to get on the ark, to give us a chance to build it. But a time came when what happened? Whose hand closed the hatch? Yeah. That will happen again. Now, I don't know how many people lived then, but the population of the world was obviously much smaller. But I know how many were saved. Eight. Was Noah a successful preacher? Seven people were saved, and they were all related to him. As we point out in the Noah tapes, by man's standard, he was not successful. By God's, he was because he was faithful. Now, I'm not talking about those people, those good Baptist and brethren people who preach the gospel every Sunday night to the already converted. <laughs> Jesus said, go out. Tell them to come in. But if we do go out and tell them to come in, we, if, if we preach the gospel in a way that is effective and led of the Lord, and people don't respond, that's not our problem. And a time will come when it will be like the days of Noah. A lot of people are not going to make it on that ark. Now let's look at Second Peter. We looked at that last night and we talked about the mocking. But Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven, un seven others, when he brought a flood upon the ungodly world. He did not spare the antediluvian world. He spared Noah, a preacher of righteousness. What was Noah preaching? Repentance and warning, wasn't he? Yeah. Now, the people had never seen rain before. You understand? The nature of the judgment that came was something that mankind had not seen or experienced. So, too... The great tribulation, the Haron Yah, the wrath of God, will be a kind of judgment the human race has never experienced before. You understand? It'll be something unique. You've got three times God pours out his wrath. Days of Noah, on his son, and in the last days.
Now, although it's unique, there are still things in the Bible that it replays. You know what I'm saying? To some degree, these things happen, but not to the same degree they're going to happen. It'll be unique. It'll be some kind of judgment people have never seen before, even though there will be things in the Bible which foreshadow it. People were mocking verse 4 of chapter 3, and it's warning again about Christians. But it's quite interesting what we have in verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with fire. And the earth and the works that are upon it will be burned up. As we point out on the Noah tapes, the word here for element is stoichiae. There's a branch of chemistry called stoichiometry, elemental chemistry, like the periodic charts they teach the kids. Teach the, kids. the gram atomic weight and all that stuff. Atomic number and all that stuff. The Greeks knew about atoms, at most, that which is indivisible, but they did not know about subatomic particles. They had no idea of a neutrino or a proton or a neutron or an electron. To the Greek, an atom, at most, meant that which cannot be divided. Okay? You know what it says, he will return with the twinkling of an eye? And it's the same Greek word, something that can't be made any smaller. The Greeks did not know about something subatomic, had no idea. In fact, they couldn't even prove atoms. But they just believed that, they would, that the rest of the matter was made up of smaller particles. But a fisherman from Galilee not only says that you can dissolve these elements, long before Einstein, long before relativity, long before uranium-238, long before plutonium, long before critical mass, a fisherman from Galilee says not only can you dissolve an element, but you can destroy the whole world that way. That's exactly what it says in the Greek text. I honestly believe, as they talked about in the Noah tapes, you're going to see something happening with nuclear terrorism. Islamic states will get a hold of some of these devices and they just think jihad and all this and they're just crazy people. More dangerous than the Cold War. Now this again is on the Noah tape. But there will be a salvation. The reason I point this out in Zechariah, what does it say? The eyes will be melting in the sockets? I have a friend who's a pathologist for the American Air Force. He's an officer and he's a pathologist. American Air Force. Very interesting, the pathology reports of what came from the people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Their eyes melted in the sockets. That's what happened. And that kind of nuclear contamination. Now, it's a frightening thing. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Be careful of hyper-Calvinism. Particular redemption. Limited atonement. He only died for the elect. Be careful of that extreme form of Calvinism. It is false. It is dangerous. Now let's look at this. It says people will mock when you warn that this judgment is coming. Expect to be mocked. But even expect, as we said last night, to be mocked by people who should know better. Now, drawing your attention back to chapter 2 of Second Peter, once more, verse 5. Noah is a preacher of righteousness, but look what comes after it. Sodom and Gomorrah. It puts the two together. So also does Jude's epistle, doesn't he? Puts this stuff together. 
the ark is being built, one day the hand of Jesus will close that ark. Nobody else is going to get on it. Sodom and Gomorrah. Gomorrah comes from the Hebrew word ligmor, to end or to finish. Gomorrah. Sodom, Gomorrah. And there's also a branch of the Talmud called the Gomorrah. That's the same Hebrew root. It was supposed to be the end of the rabbinic commentary. It was supposed to be the Gomorrah. But uh, then they added even more to it. Let's understand Sodom and Gomorrah. The wickedness in the days of Noah is on the days of Noah tape. You'll have to listen to that tape if you haven't heard it. I'm looking at it tonight insofar as it teaches about the rapture. But now we're getting into real types of the rapture, Sodom and Gomorrah. Homosexuality, lesbianism are extremely perverse. Okay? Any kind. Uh, idol uh, adultery is wrong. Fornication is wrong. But it is a natural thing being taken beyond the parameters God has set. You have two Hebrew words for sin. Het. And the other is called Pesha. They have their Greek equivalents and Hamartino and Hamartino. Chet means missing the mark. Okay? Just being totally off target in what you're doing. Pesha means going too far. This is not going far enough. This is going too far. Okay? Going too far. There is a difference between not meeting God's standards and going beyond the natural bounds. If somebody directs their sex drives in a direction outside of marital intimacy, they're missing the mark. They've hit the wrong target. They've aimed for the wrong thing. That's not why God created human sexuality. However, if you go into unnatural sex, and the Torah speaks, it's perverse to speak of, but the, the, the Levitical legislation, the Deuteronomic legislation, rather, with Moses, speaks directly of the things the Canaanite civilizations were involved in, including bestiality. Okay? These things are pesha. You've gone way too far. It was just not created for that kind of purpose. Human beings were not created to have relations with animals. Men were not created to have relations with men. Women were not created to have relations with women. The sin of Sodom will bring God's judgment. And it will have a big, big comeback in the last days. We talked about this on the Preparing for Persecution tapes, how it was socially acceptable in Greco-Roman civilization. Now, you have to understand 
the whole idea of unnatural sex. It goes back again to what happened with Noah. With these beings coming down. That was the last straw, wasn't it? Humans were not intended to have relations with demons. Weren't intended to. And you look at the whole thing today on the day Noah taped the UFO abductions, these people, what is it? It's something sexual, isn't it? The, the initiation rites into witches' covens, it's sexual, isn't it? This is the whole thing of Satan trying to obstruct God's plan to reproduce his image and likeness on the earth and to destroy the marital relationship which is supposed to mirror God's relationship with Israel and Christ with his bride, the church. When Satan is trying to destroy sex, he's trying to destroy more than sex. He's trying to destroy family, children, future, replication of God's image and likeness on the earth. Okay? He's trying to destroy heavy things. It's not... Fornication is something natural that is being exercised in an ungodly way. Homosexuality and bestiality are absolutely depraved in God's judgment. Now look at Romans. Chapter 1, verse 26, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions for their, nat for their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Do you know the, the medical statistics on life expectancy for homosexuals and lesbians, how much shorter they are? Like, in some cases, it's 25 years shorter. Things you wouldn't expect. They're, they're, they're three to four times more likely to have heart disease. They're four to five times as likely prone to, to have a serious automobile accident. Things you wouldn't ever think of unless you studied biostatistics. And just as they... Now, again, this is not saying it's God's judgment. They're reaping the consequences of their own action. Sort of like going skydiving without a parachute. The law of gravity says you're going to wind up dead. Well, if you're promiscuous and if you engage in natural sex, you're going to shorten your lifespan. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are improper. This will happen in the last days. This is heavy judgment. When God gives somebody over to it, no further chance of repentance. No way back now. I'm going to give you over to this. I'm going to give you over to this perversion. They refuse to acknowledge God any longer. So he gives them over to it. You're going to see the judgment of God on homosexuals and lesbians. In fact, we are seeing it. God will give them over to it. That there'll be no conviction that it's unnatural anymore because when they were convicted, they rebelled. This is like when God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He was warned, he was warned, he was warned, and he did it. Now, 
I have friends who are homosexuals and lesbians who have been wonderfully saved. But the Lord has set them free. And for me and for God, their sin is no worse than my sin. For me, it was cocaine. For them, it was homosexuality. I don't believe I'm any better than they are. It's not natural to take cocaine either. But I did it. The Lord set me free from coke. He can set them free from unnatural sex. We have a wonderful brother who does some of our administration in America, and the Lord has wonderfully, wonderfully saved that brother out of the background of homosexuality. Wonderful. I know people who have been saved out of this. They have families. They have children. They're normal. The Lord can do it. The Lord can do it. But there will be people be given over. They just will not hear. They just will not listen. They don't want to know. So they'll be given over to it. Now, look what happened in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Even once they were smitten, even once they were blinded, even in their blindness, they were going around so driven by unnatural passion. They were going around after they'd been smitten blind. What would somebody say if they lost their eyesight? Oh my God, I can't see. They would say, where are they? Do you understand? You're already seeing that happen with HIV. I watched a film interview a few years ago with all these homosexuals who were dying of HIV in the States. And not one of them had any sense of recognition that they should stop being a homosexual. Not one of them. There was no sense that it was the consequence of something unnatural. God is giving them over to it. Okay? Now, when you see perverse sex, by perverse I mean unnatural acts with animals or something homosexual or lesbian. Whenever that has happened, God has intervened. He certainly did it with the Nephilim. And then he does it in Sodom and Gomorrah. And what you're seeing happening in our society, ministers of the British government, four of them, being defended by the other ones. What does the Lord say? Not only those who do things, which are disgraceful to even talk about, but those who give hearty approval to it. Like the Prime Minister. Like Clinton in America wanted to give them rights to be in the military and all this. This will bring God's judgment. And the judgment begins by him giving them over to it. The conscience becomes seared. The conscience fails to function. There's something called eclectic, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to bring us to repentance. It works because we're made in God's image and likeness, and we know that. We have a conscience. But the conscience becomes seared. The conscience can no longer function. They have no way to get saved. This is frightening. He'll give them over to us. Does he hate homosexuals? No, he hates homosexuality. Now let's look at what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. Mark my words, this whole homosexual lesbian thing. You know, a lifespan something like 25% below the standard. What's gay about that? 
That's <laughs> something gay about it. Turn with me, please, to Genesis 19. One of the things that provoked this judgment. Now, this judgment, although it is not the wrath of God, it is a microcosm of it and a major type of it. Okay? God did not totally obliterate in Sodom as he did with Noah or as he did on the cross. But it is a microcosm of it. Noah, uh, Abraham sees this coming. And he says, if I can find 50, if I can find 40, if I can find 30, what you're going to see before the rapture is fewer and fewer faithful Christians. We are called to be salt and light. There will no longer be enough faithful Christians to preserve and prevent the judgment. Lot sat at the gates. This would suggest he had a powerful position in the community. Attachment to the world was a major problem for Lot and his family. Finally, God says, that's it, I'm going to destroy the city. Now look at 19, chapter 19, verse 1. These two angels correspond also to the two spies sent in to rescue Rahab. They are also figures of the two witnesses in Revelation. As are Yeshua the high priest, not Jesus, the other Yeshua, and Zerubbabel and Zechariah. There's many people who typify these two witnesses, these two witnesses. But the first two people to typify these witnesses in Revelation are these two angels, who are messengers, okay? I'm not saying it's them, I'm saying that they're types of them. The olive trees and Zechariah and the rest of it. Okay. Genesis and Revelation go together. Think of a loaf of bread, as you may have heard me say, that has not been sliced. It looks the same on both ends. Says in Isaiah, he declares the end from the beginning. Look at Joseph's vision. Genesis 24, the woman with the stars and all that. Or do you see Revelation 12? You've got the serpent in Genesis. You've got the serpent in Revelation, right? Got that? You've got the creation and the recreation. Right? You got the parallelism. What else do we have? You have the blood of Abel crying out. You have the blood of the martyrs. Revelation 11 crying out for justice. Your brother's blood cries out to me. The two go hand in hand. Okay? And of course, you've got these two angels coming to rescue or prepare or somehow do something that's going to get ready for the rescue and the judgment. Now, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot drew them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. We don't know, have any record of anyone being saved from Gomorrah. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, that you may arise early and go on your way. And they said, However, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. 
and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now, there's a deep typological meaning in the unleavened bread. It has to do with the Passover, of course, but it also has to do with not only the Last Supper, but the final feeding of the church at the end. The good and faithful servant who gives the proper food at the proper time, listen to the future history of the church tapes. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, and all the people from every quarter. Now, when we get into this stuff in Genesis, there's a lot of stuff in it that's in Matthew 24. Remember Abraham chased the vultures? He makes the sacrifice away from the carcass in chapter 15. What's it say in Matthew 24? Were the corpses there, the vultures? There are many things that give hinted details to the Olivet Discourse. And this chapter is one of them. Now, in the ancient Near East, you were responsible for three days for the welfare of the person who stayed in your house. It would have been perhaps the ultimate disgrace if something happened to a guest in your tent or your house. To the point he was willing to give his daughters over. Now, of course, he knew these men didn't have any interest in women anyway. But he made the gesture. And they called out to Lot. Before they laid down, the men of Sodom surrounded the house, both young and old. Notice the word surround. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door after him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. He tries to appeal to them as brothers. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with men. Please let me bring them out to you and do whatever you like, only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. And of course, he has some understanding they were messengers from God. But they said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, This one came in as an alien and already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and he and came near to break the door. He came in as an alien. Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world. Christians have gotten very comfortable in the world. Listen to the Daniel 3 and 6 tape. Okay? We're supposed to be in the world, but not of it. Okay? A time will come when those who will not participate in the world's abominations will be seen as aliens. Up to a point, we seem to be able to live in it. We can have a TV with all the blasphemy and pornography in the house and all that, but a time will come when that stuff will turn against us. They'll tell you, who are you? You're either like us or you're an alien. Who are you to tell us this is wrong? Lot was trying to get along with these guys and keep his life. Let's not get too excited now. Let's work this out. You cannot make peace with evil. That's, why the, that's one of the reasons there can be no lasting peace in the Middle East. You have a false Judaism of the rabbis and you have a hellish lie of Islam. You cannot make peace with Islam. And the false Judaism of the rabbis will always be at war with Christ, with their Messiah. The men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great. 
so that they weary themselves trying to find the doorway. You'd think they'd give up. Then the men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whoever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. Now notice, as with Noah and with Sodom and Gomorrah, with Lot, connected in Peter, God is in the business of saving families. After your relationship with Jesus, after your own salvation, there is nothing, nothing more important in your life than the salvation of your unsaved loved ones. Nothing. God is in the business of saving souls, but he's also in the business of saving families. There is nothing more important after your relationship with the Lord than the salvation of your unsaved loved ones. Parents, husbands, wives, children, brothers, sisters, whatever. That's your next priority. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Notice in Revelation, who does God send to destroy? Angels, right? And Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Get up out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. Wow. Matthew 24. They'll be marrying and giving in marriage. Let's look at Matthew 24. Verse 37. Remember, Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah are linked in Peter and in Jude. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah, as in those days which were before the flood they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So shall be the coming of the Son of Man. Now Sodom and Gomorrah are linked in Genesis. They're linked positionally in Genesis. They're linked positionally in Peter and in Jude. Both cases, you had perverted sex, unnatural sex, right? Then there shall be two men in the field, one taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken and one left. Therefore, be on the alert. You don't know the day your Lord is coming. There is nothing wrong with getting married or being given in marriage. But let he who is in the field not go back for his cloak. But he in his house not go back to his possessions like Lot's wife did. You understand the background. What happens? Attachment to the world. Things that are not wrong in themselves have become idols. Marriage, relationships, careers, business, possessions, even ministry. When he was in the field, not go back to the cloak of authority, the mission field. Even ministry, the work of the Lord becomes more important than the Lord of the work. We have a tape, the second sin of David. I wish more pastors would listen to it. Every day I ask myself, what's more important to me? The work of the Lord or the Lord of the work? Is the ministry becoming an idol in my heart? Come on, we're going to get married. They appear to be jesting. There will be people who should be saved, who could be saved, who should be rescued, 
who could be rescued, but who aren't going to be. They will not take it serious when you tell them a rapture, a rescue is coming. What does it say in Peter? In the same as since the time of our fathers, who are asleep, talking about believers there, primarily, isn't it? Fathers, sleep, not death. They said last night, not just the unsaved, but believers. There'll be Christians who will mock the rapture. They're mocking it now. Gerald Coates mocks it. Rick Joyner mocks it. Mike Bickle says it's a judgment. This is dangerous. This is what happened in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it teaches what's going to happen in the end. Understand. They think it's a joke. It's no joke. This is real. It's very real. When morning dawns, what does the dawn have to do with always? The resurrection, yeah. All four Gospels, Jesus rises at sunrise, doesn't he? Rising of the S-O-N, a metaphor. No, rising of the S-U-N is a metaphor for the rising of the S-O-N. The angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife, your daughters, who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Now, this judgment comes very quickly. The tribulation comes upon the world suddenly. There's many things which, again, teach this. Look at the book of Amos, chapter 8, verse 9. It will come about on that day, declares the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Everything will seem to be right. That's what it says in Peter. Those people in Sodom thought everything was all right. They mocked Noah. Everything will seem to be going along. People will be living immorally and unnaturally. And they'll think everything is just going the way it always has and it's going to keep going that way. Suddenly, wham, the night falls. Sun and moon don't give their light. But he hesitated, in verse 16 of Genesis 19. So the men seized his hand and the hands of his wife and the hands of his daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. The righteous are scarcely saved in Peter. That does not only mean born again. He who perseveres to the end shall be saved. Understand. It's also eschatological. It's redemption. It's only by the grace of God that any of us make it out of here. If he didn't intervene, none of us would get out of here. Our flesh would be clinging to this place in some way. One of the reasons God allows... You know why? Look at why godly Christians so often seem to have the most trouble. Unsaved people have it better than Christians very often, don't they? Why do the wicked prosper? But then I perceive their end. But why is it that godly Christians tend to struggle more than carnal Christians?
when we have it good in this world, our flesh gets to like it here. We get comfortable. We get attached to it. Things that are not wrong begin to have a grip on us. So the Lord allows us to go through trials in part so we won't put our hope in this place. And the more you have, you know, the more you have by way of career, position, business, whatever you have, the more God has blessed you with, you're going to have a thorn. There's going to, you, know, you could have money, you could have, but the more you have by the world's standards, the deeper that thorn is going to go. Now that may be the devil. It will be the devil. It was the thorn of Satan, right? The buff, the buff of his flesh. It's something that the devil just uses and uses and uses to torment you. Why? Because we'll be given over to pride and we'll begin to like it here. The old nature will like it here. The Lord will give us, every one of us will have something that will make us want to leave. Health, finance, I don't know, it could be anything. It could be very personal to you. And the more God blesses you and uses you and prospers you, the bigger and the deeper that thorn is going to go. You know, I have friends who are extremely successful in business. Very wealthy. But every one of them, I know, has some kind of a problem. I have a friend, add to a multi-million dollar fortune in America, Jewish believer, him and his wife, I baptized him. Add to a multi-million dollar fortune. The old man's a big wheel. Ambassador and all this stuff. I have a daughter with uh, cerebral palsy. He'd give every penny. I have a normal little girl. Every penny. She's a beautiful kid. Every penny to see Sarah have a future. What hope is there for little Sarah? Who's going to take care of this kid when they're old? Well, that makes them hope for Jesus to come back. See what I'm saying? The more you... There's nothing wrong with these things. There's nothing wrong with position, money, education. There's nothing wrong with any good family. Praise God for all those things. Those things are not the problem. We are the problem. We're the problem. We get attached to this place. And sometimes these things become idols. Even though we're religious about it, we masquerade the idolatry with our religious observance, these things become idols. I know. I was trapped in the idolatry of making money. Even though I was generous with my money and my time as a kid, I was trapped. And when the Lord told me to go to Israel and and, and go to the mission, I didn't want to do it. For one reason. Spondulics. I tell people, I would be better off if I was never had money than to have had guilt and then have to go live by faith. Then again, as you can see, the manna falls faithfully. Actually, I'm plump because I eat junk food. Good food is too expensive. I used to be Pavia's little buttercup. Now I'm a big barrel of lard. <laughs> yeah. And so the story continues. He hesitates. It was only God's intervention that got him out of the city. 
Now we have to understand something called a palistrophe, a palistroph. A palistroph means something that closes in on itself. It's the theological term for a kind of design. You make a 45 degree angle, like that. This is 70 AD. This is Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. In 70 AD, you had a local phenomena, a local destruction of the temple that the Jewish believers under Simeon, who fled the city, thought was the rapture, the end. They thought it was a universal destruction when they fled. You understand? They thought that was it, based on Matthew 24. So, you have the local perceived as global. That happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. They thought it was the end of the world, didn't they? Wanted to procreate children with their own father. Okay. You got that in both cases. Both cases, city destroyed. Both cases, God's people were called aliens. Who are you Messianic Jews? Okay. Both cases, there were warnings. Okay. A time of grace. From the time of Jesus to 70 AD, there was a time of grace. To repent. With Abraham, it was the same, a time of grace. In both cases, there was a flight. In both cases, you read Josephus, destroying fire. In both cases, warning was rejected. Read Josephus. Okay. Of course, they had to fly out quickly. In both cases, they thought it was the total end. Palestrophe. The local phenomena is seen as global. In both cases, you have the phenomena or the, not phenomena, the situation where God's people were surrounded and taken out. If you read Josephus, the believers were rescued almost supernaturally when the Romans withdrew in 70 AD. They went out from right between the Romans. So Sada, so Lot and his family were taken out. That's the palestrophe. Okay. 70 AD, again, a major type. You understand how Sodom and Gomorrah teaches about Matthew 24? Okay. Now, let's continue. 
And it came about, verse 17, when they brought them outside, that one said, Escape for your life. Don't let them back of you. Don't stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains. Don't you be swept away. What happened in 70 AD? Where were they told to go to? Mountains. So he was a Jew to flee to the mountains. What did Jesus say? Don't look back. Don't go back to your house. Don't go back for your clothes. What do you got more? Mountains. What do you have? Don't look back. Okay. Now you got a 45 degree angle above. You drop a 45 degree angle beneath the events leading up to the rapture will have the same pattern. You understand? Let's continue. But Lot said, Oh no, my Lord. He doesn't want to go. People talk about Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. The Bible says, Be not anxious for the day of the Lord. Again, think of obstetrics. You have a young couple get married. They really want to have a kid. Maybe they have some problems conceiving, but finally, wife is expecting they're so happy they're going to have a kid. She is really looking forward to that baby. The baby showers, you do that in Britain? You get baby clothes and going shopping, if it's a boy or a girl, should we ask them about the ultrasound, is it a boy or a girl or not, and all this stuff, and they want to know, and everything is centered on that baby coming. Everybody is enthusiastic about the baby, the grandparents, everybody's getting ready for this distinguished arrival. But who looks forward to the labor? <laughs> Nobody. Nobody. Especially when you know it's going to be a four-step delivery. <laughs> Understand? Nobody's going to look forward. You want the kid? When the kid comes, the rest doesn't matter. Everybody's looking forward to the kid. We all want to be with Jesus, absolutely. But who's looking forward to maternal life? Nobody. That's crazy. It's traumatic. Well, take that. I can't wait for Jesus to come. <laughs> wait a minute. Okay, we want Jesus to come, but there's something that comes before that. Now let's look. Escape for your life. Oh no, no, my lord. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness in verse 19, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there, that my life may be saved. Is it not small? And he said, Behold, I grant you this request also not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Now, somehow there is a typological foreshadowing here between this and Sela or Petra. You understand in Isaiah 16? Somehow this flight to Zoar teaches something about 
Petra. There'll be some, most scholars think there's some kind of a refuge in Petra. Therefore, they called the name of the town Za'ar in verse uh, 22. And that has the idea of being small. Um, who, has anybody been here with us? We've taken people there to Za'ar. Nobody's been to Za'ar. You, you've been to, Tony's been there. Yeah. The sun has risen over the earth when Lot came to Za'ar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Remember in Noah, the first time it gets destroyed by water, second time by fire. This judgment is a microcosm of the wrath. And he overthrew those cities and all the valleys and all the inhabitants of the cities what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. We don't even know exactly where Sodom and Gomorrah is. Some people think it's on the Jordanian side under the water of the Dead Sea. We don't know where it is, but you can see actually pillars of salt all over the place, can't you? You've been down there. We don't know which one is Lot. Ah, Lot's wife. Mrs. Lot. We don't know which one is her, but she's one of them. I think I chipped a bit of her off and put it on my cheeseburger. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord and looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and towards all the land of the valley and saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abram, Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities which Lot had lived. Somehow Abraham here typifies Jesus. You understand? It was actually for Abraham's sake that Lot was rescued. It's actually for Jesus' sake that we get rescued. You understand? There's an analogy. So therefore, we have Sodom and Gomorrah, and we have the events of 70 AD. Has anybody here ever read Josephus, Wars of the Jews? That's a good book. That's a good book. Next, major type. Major type. The Exodus of the Jews. I don't want to go into this. We have tape upon tape dealing with it. Egypt is a figure of, Pharaoh is a figure of, and a type of Antichrist. Egypt is a figure of the world. Pharaoh, deified by the Egyptians, a type of Satan, the god of this world. And he is also prefigures the Antichrist. Man worshipped as God. Never a man has worshipped as God in the Bible other than Jesus. It teaches something about the Antichrist. Now, coming out of Egypt is our salvation through the water to the promised land, but it is also a type of the rapture. Once again, we have tapes dealing with this. It's on the future history of the church, among others. The judgments that are in the book of Exodus are replayed in Revelation, aren't they? The darkness, the blood on the water. Right? Pharaoh's magicians counterfeiting the miracles of Moses and Aaron, the Antichrist and false prophet, counterfeiting the miracles of Jesus and his witnesses. 
counterfeit signs and wonders. Right? When the night came, who had lights in the house? The Jews. They were eating the Passover. Now, we deal with this on the future history of the church tapes. The Passover happens when Jesus dies. The second, He's like the second Passover lamb. But it also happens at the end, when the church is prepared to be evacuated. There's a feeding of God's people. Now, this is on the future history of the church tapes. I can't go into it now. You have to listen to the tapes if you don't know. Most of you have heard. But this Exodus event, they bring Joseph's bones with them out of Egypt because the dead in Christ rise first. We come out together, right? Those judgments come back. Those judgments come back. The Exodus is a major type of the rapture. God's people are fed. The judgments are already coming on Egypt, aren't they? But God's people are somehow protected. They're in it. They're suffering affliction, aren't they? They're suffering persecution. They're suffering tribulation, the Jews, aren't they? Making bricks for Pharaoh. So the church enters the tribulation. But when the real wrath comes, the final judgment, the Jews are out of there. Just like in Revelation, the Exodus, a major, major type of the rapture. Possibly the major one in the Old Testament. Possibly. Debatably. What we already looked at this morning, and the walls came tumbling down. The rescue of Rahab. Remember the scarlet thread? That your sins are like scarlet, Isaiah 118. They shall be as snow. Rahab's Rescue. And once again, who else was saved with her? Family. Family. There are many minor things that teach about the rapture. The rescue of Jeremiah is one. These guys are going to get wiped out. The Babylonian captivity, you're going to be all right. Many minor things which parenthetically teach about it to some degree. We're looking at the major types of the rapture now. The major things which teach about it. Okay. So far we have the transfiguration. Enoch. The days of Noah. Sodom and Gomorrah. 70 A.D. The Exodus. Rahab's rescue. What about the rapture of Elijah? The woman Jezebel covered the vineyard on behalf of Ahab. The wicked woman in Revelation tries to get the vineyard. Right? But she gives power to the to the Antichrist brings with the conflict with Elijah somehow the ministry of Elijah comes back in the last days he thinks he's alone 
There's only 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. That's where the church will be. You won't even know. There must be other people out here. Already you've seen that happen, isn't it? How many people here were in situations where they saw the way the church was going and society was going, and they said, well, I know the world is wrong, but now I know the church is wrong. This stuff isn't right. There must be other people in this church to see this stuff is nuts. How many people have experienced that? Looked around. And you, and you felt alone. And you didn't know there were others. But then you find out the 7,000, whatever that means, The rapture of Elijah. Well, who else was raptured? Jesus. He was raptured, wasn't he? He was caught up. The ascension of Jesus. Not only is his resurrection proleptic, his ascension is proleptic. His ascending to be with the Father. It's the same as our ascension. The rapture of Jesus is the type of the rapture of the church. Every time you see somebody raptured, who else was raptured? Paul. Turn to Second Corinthians. Chapter 12, boasting is necessary in verse 1, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in body, I do not know. We're not sure if it was what kind of rapture it was. Or out of body, I don't know. God knows such a man was caught up. You see that word caught up? To the third heaven. The Greeks understood heavens this way. The atmosphere of the earth is the first. Outer space is the second. Eternity is the third. The third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in body or apart from the body, I don't know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. What no eye hath seen or ear hath heard, God prepared for those who loved him. Who else was raptured? John. Revelation chapter 4. Verse 1. After these things, I looked and behold the door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet, notice the trumpet, speaking with me said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. After the age of the church. Now remember, at the last trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise. We shall be changed with the trumpet. Come up. John, here's the trumpet. Come up. Who, who, Dr. McLeod was with us. Who came with us to Patmos? We did the seven churches tour. Vima, yeah. You know, I mean, I'm not trying to, we, not, we don't have any tours planned, but if you, if you ever get the gelt and you want to go on, it's, it's much better when you go to the places, you can show this stuff, you know, and down to Transfiguration, it's much better when you can do it. 
if you're able to do it. The Lord so provides and leads. John on Patmos. Every time somebody is raptured. Now there are those who say, the Apostle John, there's an ancient tradition still believed in the Eastern Orthodox Church that says John never died. And he could be one of those two witnesses. There is that view in the East. It was never popular in the West, but the same as people say Moses and Elijah, Moses and Enoch, there is a view, it could be John. From what Jesus said, there are those who are standing here who will not die. Now the Greek is present continuous active. It just means he won't, will not forever be dying. I stood on what the archaeologists tell us is John's grave in Ephesus a few times myself. But there is that view. I'm not, whether, now, I personally think the archaeologists are right. That is where John is buried. But there is this view. I'm only pointing it out. Nonetheless, John on Patmos, when John was told to come up hither, when the trumpet sounded, he said, come up hither, and he saw these things. The same thing that happened to John will happen to you. One day that trumpet will sound and you'll see those same things. God will say, come up hither. The Lord will say, come up hither. The trumpet will sound and go up and you'll see what John saw. That's what the church was told. Write these things and encourage one another with these words. All of these things. So far, we have 11 major types of the rapture. Now, the Catholics try to tell us Mary was raptured. They call it the uh, Assumption. At least since 1950. <laughs> Transfiguration. Enoch. Days of Noah. Sodom and Gomorrah. 70 AD. The Exodus of the Jews. Rahab's rescue. The rapture of Elijah. The ascension of Jesus, the transfiguration, or whatever happened to Paul in 2 Corinthians, John on Patmos. Those are the major types of the rapture. There are minor types of the rapture. Those are the major types of the rapture. Now, when you put them together, you get a pretty clear picture, at least a much clearer picture that you'd normally think of, don't you? Each one of these things reveals something. Each one of these things reveals something about what's coming. Each incident, each rapture incident teaches something about what we're going to experience, be it by resurrection or by rapture. This is our future. This is what our hope is. What's our hope? To escape from the wrath to come. We're going to escape from the wrath to come because the wrath was poured out upon Jesus. That's the only way we can escape. The only reason we're going to have an escape is by God's intervention and grace. Our flesh, our old nature, would be like Lot and his family. We'd be holding on to this place. The flesh doesn't want to die. The flesh doesn't want to leave. God's grace. This wrath is coming. 
This wrath is going to come on this world just as surely as it came on Sodom and Gomorrah. This homosexual lesbian thing is going to get worse. Much worse. You're going to find violent gangs, the same as in Sodom and Gomorrah. They'll be getting control of governments. They'll be getting control of media. They already have much of that. They're going to make these laws... God's judgment, no, God's wrath is going to come. The same as God's wrath came on Egypt and Pharaoh, God's wrath is going to come. The same as God's judgment came on Jezebel. Remember the dogs looked to blood the way the dogs were looking at the blood of Jezebel when her stolen hands were in the puddle. That's the type of figure of the judgment of the woman in Revelation. God's wrath is going to come. He's drunk with the blood of the saints. God's wrath is going to come. His wrath is coming. Make no mistake. It's coming. There's one hope. That the wrath that was poured out on Jesus, as Charles Wesley wrote the beautiful words to the hymn, His blood availed for me. That's the one hope. No. His wrath came in the days of Noah. His wrath came in the days of Lot. His wrath came in the days of Moses. His wrath came in the days of Elijah, in some way. His wrath came on Jesus. His wrath is coming again. But because of Jesus, we're getting out of here. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.